Beautiful. <clears throat> it's warm. Isn't that good? I tell you, I, uh, this morning reminds me when I was a little kid uh, living in Iowa in a little town named uh, Tama. We would drive 30 miles to go to uh, Marshalltown and uh, rain, sleet, snow, hurricane, not in Iowa, but sounds good. Uh, cornfield fire. <laughs> uh, no matter what, my parents were, we're going. Uh, there was no reason whatsoever that we would never go to church. And I remember there was a storm uh, that occurred and we were driving uh, to Marshalltown and we came over a rise. We were in one of those areas where the road would just simply have a whole bunch of these. And so you would have times where not, they weren't mountains, they were little hills. You would come over the top and you would see a car that you may not have seen just because it was continuous uh, hills. And uh, it was a, a blizzard. And all of a sudden, as we came over the hill, uh, I, I was in the center seat in the back uh, middle row. We had a station wagon. And uh, it was one of those moments where you go, ah, there was a car in our lane coming right at us. They had slid on the snow. And uh, my dad, uh, we all kind of screamed. My dad quickly turned the wheel. We went down into the uh, ditch and uh, we we didn't hit each other. Uh, the other car somehow gained control. We swerved enough. Uh, we didn't flip. Uh, we just went down in the ditch. Uh, and amazingly so, my dad drove out of the ditch. And as you know, farm ditches, you just don't do that. Uh, and all of a sudden, my dad for the first time said, we're going home. And it was like, wow, this is serious. Uh, yeah, but I was, it, it's uh, one of those memories that I'll never forget that my parents uh, really valued the importance of being at church and uh, even, in a, even in a blizzard, we were going to go. And what reminded me of that was uh, uh, as Don, bless you, Don, uh, Don Hansen got here a little late today because they got hit. A car went across the median and hit the rear of them, and fortunately no one was hurt, and they got here okay. So uh, uh, we're always thankful for the Lord uh, looking out for us, even on a special day like Sunday. I get the privilege to uh, share from God's Word because uh, when a year and a half ago we were going to have an Easter service, uh, Libby was just about to pop. Uh, Her due date was right there uh, around Easter, and we didn't know what to do. We took a risk, and uh, Thomas was like, I'm going to preach. And me was saying... I hope you are, because I am not ready uh, if your uh, wife ends up uh, delivering. Uh, and we ended up having a service at the uh, Nielsen's house, uh, because uh, in case she had to uh, actually did go into labor, uh, wouldn't uh, disturb the service, uh, as we were kind of doing home church at that time. And uh, so since uh, Libby is... Uh, 
four days overdue uh, today, we didn't want to go through that. Uh, so uh, went on ahead and decided I'm preaching regardless. But uh, Libby, glad you're here and uh, hope to see my sixth grandbaby here soon. Uh, and so looking forward uh, to that. Now, that'll be a wonderful. Another one to chase around the house and scream. Okay, that's right. Well, first of all, before I dive in, I uh, also wanted to announce uh, we have a new member uh, here at uh, Ambassador Bible Fellowship. Uh, Beverly, yeah, in the back there, you want to just, Beverly Phillips is, uh, why don't we just say thank you that the Lord, uh, let's give her a hand. She's uh, going to be a new member. Uh, here an ambassador and she's already excited she's already diving in and helping in in lots of uh, great ways uh the bulletin you hold in your hand uh, she folded for you this morning so thank you beverly uh, we're glad to glad to have you here when i was in uh, college it was my second year of college i went to uh, uc riverside my freshman year i went to cal state chico uh, the party school of America at the time. And uh, I, when I came home for the summer, uh, we kind of met with students that we had been involved in a high school ministry with Campus Crusade. Uh, my wife and I were involved with the high school ministry uh, at our high school. And uh, we would always meet with the students that we had done ministry with uh, when we got back together in the summer to see how they were doing at the schools that they were going, hear what ministry they were doing. And it was an exciting time. But there was also another issue that arose that caused a little bit of a crisis for me personally. What do I do with the reality of those that I knew in high school who had professed Christ I had the privilege to see make a profession for Christ. And now as we were just getting together saying, hey, how is so-and-so doing? Hey, I hear over, you know, at uh, UCLA, what, you know, what are they doing over there? And would hear reports of those same people were now um, living completely ungodly lives. Not only were they living ungodly lives, they were justifying their lifestyle as Christian. I really went through this crisis of what do I do with that? How do I handle the fact that someone made a profession of faith? And at that point, I held and still do hold the conviction that when a person becomes a Christian, they're always a Christian. But all of a sudden, I'm seeing these people who are... Uh, now saying that they made a profession at one time in their life in high school, and I'd even seen what seemed like transformation in their life, and now they're not only involved in a lifestyle that is very dishonoring to the Lord, they've actually become champions for that lifestyle. What do I do with that? As with a lot of crises and conflicts that we uh, experience in life, we have a choice on how we want to respond. And for me, I, I had to go back to the Bible and I had to evaluate what did the Bible have to say to give me direction and understanding. And uh, one of the books that really impacted me was The Gospel According to Christ or Jesus by John MacArthur. 
that that book probably was so instrumental at that time in my life in helping give me a proper perspective of how to look at these situations. And also the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning and that we've been looking at over the last previous three messages is we've been looking at James chapter 3. I encourage you to go on ahead and turn there. Uh, James is, his whole book is full of self-tests, if you want to call it that. He's writing to Jewish believers who have been dispersed from Jerusalem And he's writing a letter of encouragement to them, but he's also challenging the church that's in all these different locations outside of Jerusalem. He's challenging them with 13 tests to give themselves to evaluate, are they in the faith? Are they in the faith? Because yes, it is true, there can be those who are in the church who don't know Christ. And so James is not wanting anybody to be in the church, not know Christ, and then come face to face with the Lord on Judgment Day and be too late. So the whole book is a challenge to his audience to evaluate themselves. And so uh, the seventh self-test, which we've kind of been looking at in James chapter 3, starting in verse 13... Uh, he asks the question, who is wise and understanding? And to review, uh, to give you an idea of what, what we've covered so far, uh, just want to review two things. What does it mean to be wise and understanding uh, from a Jewish perspective, according to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament? And what was the significance of the question that James was asking? What did it mean? So just quickly, uh, as we've covered in uh, past past Sundays, uh, we learn from Job and Moses that an individual or a nation that is wise and understanding, they're a person or a people group that's skilled in the art of righteous living. We learn in Job 28 when he's questioning why in the world the things that have happened to him have happened, God uses the picture of mining. There are men in the world who go mining for gold. They go mining for precious jewels. They go mining for silver. They do a lot of hard work looking for something precious of great value. And God says there is something of greater value than gold, silver, or precious jewels. And it's wisdom and it's understanding. And he says, and then they ask the question, where would you go to find it? And there is no location where you go to find it. What he ends up saying to Job is this. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So Moses takes that same concept and when he's writing the Torah and he's challenging the children of Israel in his sermon in Deuteronomy before they're about to enter into the promised land, he uses the same concept that God had given to Job. 
And in Deuteronomy 4, this is what Moses said to the children of Israel. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely, surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So in essence, what Moses was saying is, if you learn and keep the commandments of God, then the people in the surrounding nations will observe that you're different in two particular ways. One, you have a God who's near. Because, see, God said when there's sin in the land, he would leave, right? And that's what he eventually did. But if there's no sin in the land, God would be near. But the second thing is, is that evil would be distant. God would be near and evil would be distant. And therefore, the four nations, when they would look at Israel, they would then say, wow, that is a wise and understanding people. So in a nutshell, if you look at Job, Moses, also Solomon repeated uh, the same concept in Proverbs. This is what the Old Testament has to say about wisdom and understanding. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Now, when you do math and you use the word is, what does that mean? Equal to. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. So when you and I fear, worship, and obey God alone as our creator, our future judge, to whom we're going to have to give an account, believing He's the only source of ultimate truth. He's the one who will save me. He's the King of the universe upon whom I can trust. I will become wise. Also, knowing and avoiding evil is understanding. When I believe that God's revealed Word alone is absolute truth, it informs me about God's righteous character, then I have to make a choice, and that is to avoid evil. Why? Because I don't want my life to violate, violate or oppose God, His character, or His plan. The choice to avoid evil out of love for God will result in you and me having understanding. But here's the key. What did Moses say to the children of Israel? He didn't say just that you were to know the law. What were they to do? 
they were to keep it. It's not knowing and reciting information. It's obeying. And that's what brings wisdom. And we all know that Moses, as he stated in the end of Deuteronomy, all the curses that they would experience as a nation if they chose not to avoid evil, if they chose not uh, to worship God alone. He listed out all the curses that they would experience. But he wanted them, if they were to truly be wise and understanding, he wanted them to know, here's all the blessings that you would experience if you loved him alone. Now, James is using this concept. This is what he's referring to as he's talking to his fellow Jewish Christians. They're familiar with this idea and this concept. So in essence, what he's saying is someone who is wise and understanding is someone who fears the Lord. They avoid evil and they keep the law. In other words, it's just another way of saying there's someone who's given their life to Christ and they're living their lives for his glory. They're a Christian. So that's why he asks, are you wise and understanding? He's asking the question. And as we saw in previous weeks, there are those who are in the church who are pretenders. They profess the faith, but they're pretending. They're doing the externals, but their heart has not been transformed. And that's what we saw in verses 13 through 16. And on your outline there, I've uh, summarized what we saw in previous weeks. Here's what James had to say about pretenders. They've deceived themselves and others. Why? Because they've embraced earthly, fleshly, and demonic wisdom rather than godly wisdom. And when they have done that, the result is their heart is motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's not about God. It's about themselves. It's not about contentment. Con, con, it's easy for me to say. It's not about contentment and God's provision. It's about bitterness and jealousy because I'm not content with what I have. I want more. And what's the fruit of that? That's the last point that he has there. He said the result is disorder and every evil thing. And as we highlighted before, the concept of disorder there in the Greek is referring to rebellion, insurrection, revolution, overthrow. So I'm not submitting to God. I'm actually wanting to overthrow. That's what James is saying. There's going to be two types of people in the church which one are you? And so today, what I want to do is we start looking at what does a genuine believer look like? Uh, I want to look at verse 13. Uh, and uh, if you would open your Bibles there, I'd like to read uh, through James chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Verse 13. 
James asked the question, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at what does a genuine Christian look like? But today, I just want to look at two things that are in verse 13. They're so significant that I don't want to run past it. There are two points. Very simple, but very profound. He challenges the believers who are listening to this, reading this letter that he sent. He's challenging them not to look back and determine whether they're a Christian based upon a past event. When you read the book of 1 John, which says, I've written these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life and that he who has the son has the life. And he, he's written it such that how do I know I have Jesus in my life? If you read the book of 1 John, everything is about evaluating your present life. You won't find in there, well, I got baptized when I was seven. Uh, you know, I went on a missions trip uh, when I was in college. You know, you're, you're not going to find that in the list in First John. Everything that he's challenging them is, is what is true in your life today? What is true today? And so there's two things here that, that James is going to challenge. Is demonstrate it by the fruit in your life. How do you know you're a Christian? Prove it. Prove it. And the second thing is that the fruit of wisdom should produce gentleness in our heart. Now, that that may sound like, wow, what's the significance of that? It's everything. Because as we look at what gentleness is, I think you'll see just how profound it is. And then the question is, as we look at this passage today, is how is my fruit? If my fruit were inspected, would I be convicted of the crime of being a Christian? Would anyone have enough evidence to convict me? And secondly, am I gentle? And what does that mean? And is it evident in my life? And honestly, it's the basis for the rest of what James has to say. So that's why we want to start there. Point number one. A believer is to prove their faith is genuine by their good way of life. That's exactly what Moses said. It's when the other nations see that you apply, not just simply that you know, but that you do these righteous, you fulfill these righteous laws. That's when the other nations would know, wow, that's a wise and understanding people. Even in the Old Testament, that's how God looked at the importance of not just saying that you're a follower of God, but that you're actually following him. 
If you look at James chapter 2, verse 14, if you would turn there real quick. Before James even gets here to this passage, he's already talked about this issue. Notice what he says in James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. That's what I experienced. I was a high school teacher. Uh, I was a brand new teacher t- teaching high, uh, high school history at my alma mater. And uh, in my English, or uh, my uh, U.S. history class, I would uh, share the gospel at the very beginning of the class. Uh, I would use the Reformation as a great excuse uh, to, uh, to share the gospel. And uh, I would go all the way back to the Garden of Eden because it was important that you understand why the Catholic Church and the Protestants were having a disagreement. It all went back to the Garden of Eden uh, as to what the problem is, as to what the solution was and why there was a debate and it was having an impact on history. So after I would share uh, about the Garden of Eden, uh, kids would always come up to me and uh, want to let me know that they, hey, Mr. Gross, I want you to know I'm a Christian. And uh, one of my first classes, I had a young man come up to me afterwards. He waited till everyone was kind of leaving. He's like, oh, Mr. Gross, I just want you to know I'm a Christian. I looked him right in the eyeballs and I said, make sure not to tell anyone. Because he was the worst example in my class. See, he was all talk, but there was no walk. In fact, they completely contradicted. If he hadn't told me, I would have never guessed. And I did. I challenged him until his walk matched his talk to please not be proclaiming that he's a Christian in my class. Because then I would have to explain to everybody him on a daily basis. Does that make sense? That, that's what James is challenging here is, is prove it. If you would flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 7. This was very important to Jesus as well in his Sermon on the Mount. Even before the church began... At uh, Pentecost, Jesus was already talking about the problems that were going to occur among the people of God. If you turn to uh, verse 15 there, chapter 7, he had this to say. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, 
nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are probably some of the harshest words that a person would ever want to hear from the Savior. And yet the same problem exists here. How am I going to know where a person is spiritually? Jesus says, don't look at what they say, because notice he compares everything that they say and even some of their religious activity. So they're in the church, you know, uh, healing, casting out demons. That's not something you do at the local bar. (laughs) These are activities that are happening in a church setting. And Jesus is saying, check the fruit. Check the fruit. And by the way, how do you know an orange tree is an orange tree? You don't check the roots. You don't go get a slice of the uh, root system, take it to a microscope, look under it. Mm, yeah, this has got some orangeness to it. Uh, now, what you do is you look at the fruit that's above ground and visible. That's how you know what the root system is down below. See, the picture that Jesus is giving is we can't see each other's hearts. We, we don't know where each person is. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians, he goes, sometimes I don't even judge myself because I don't even understand my own heart. But Jesus did say, check their fruit. So as James is giving this challenge here is, are you wise in understanding? He's saying, prove it. Prove it. Not through your conversation, not through your talk, not knowing the right answers, through your life. Why? Because only a transformed heart can produce that kind of fruit. And that's, that's the next point that's so significant is, if you look to Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is very clear when he says, it's got to be the Spirit that transforms us from within in our heart, such the fruit in our life changes. If you look at Romans 8, starting in verse 6, he says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. See, that's such a clear statement right there that Paul is saying that is very similar to what James is saying. You're only going to have spiritual fruit if the Spirit is in you. And so a person can say they have the Spirit, but only the Spirit can bear spiritual fruit. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, What? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's the question. Can you produce that kind of fruit if that's the fruit of the Spirit on your own? James would say no. Paul would say no. Because he does list the fruit of uh, the flesh in the previous three verses. And it's not a pretty list. Now, we can have certain levels of love. We can have certain levels of joy, peace, but not to the level that it gives God glory for him and for others. Only the Spirit of God within us can do that. That's why Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. See, James is challenging us. Are we a Christian? Are we wise in understanding? Do we love him? The first thing he asks is fruit. Is there fruit in your life and can you prove it? Because the the verb there is demonstrate it. Demonstrate it. Don't talk about it. Demonstrate it. Question. If your spouse, children, or your parents, your siblings, your friends, your coworkers, your fellow students, your neighbors, were able to look at your life, would they be able to with resounding conviction say, I know for sure you are a Christian. Would they be able to look at your life? Would they see love, joy, peace, patience? When they look at your priorities, what you quickly say yes to and what you make excuses to avoid. How you invest your time, how you spend your money, what you read or listen to, the quality of your work when your supervisor is not watching, or homeschool students, what you do when your teacher is in the other room. My kids confessed when they were adults that they found the teacher's manual and used it when doing their homework. It's all about forgiveness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How do you keep your commitments? What's the content of your speech when you're with the guys? How do you resolve conflict? How quick do you admit that you were wrong? 
Do you assume responsibility or do you make excuses? How well do you forgive? Do you extend mercy when offended? Do you extend grace when it's not deserved? How influential is God's word in what you think, you believe, your convictions, and your actions? Do you love God and others? Do you seek Christ and his righteousness first? See, that's the list that God would use to evaluate our fruit. How are we doing? And as we know, the key of this passage is the real issue here is salvation. Is the person reading this in the faith? But also the challenge here is, is even as a Christian, if I am in the faith, how am I doing? How is my fruit honoring him as I live for him? As I was sharing those lists of things to evaluate and faces came to mind, names, people, conversations that you've had that you know were not honoring to him. Uh, here's a challenge that I'd, I'd have. One of the priorities here at Ambassador is that we, we are just that. We're ambassadors for Christ. That we're, resi- we're <laughs> at a little gang moment. We represent. Uh, we represent uh, Jesus in our life. What we say. How we live. How well are we representing And if you come to the conclusion, you know what? I'm not a good representation of Christ. My witness is horrible. How do you get your witness back? It's actually very simple, but very difficult. Simple in what to do, difficult in what it requires. Here's what I recommend. Had a father... Uh, come into my office. I've actually had many dads come into my office when I was a youth pastor. Usually it would be when their son was a junior or senior. It's kind of late in the game, but that's usually when they came. Uh, and they would say, could you fix my son? Now, I, I usually already knew their son. They were in the ministry. Uh, I was aware of what was going on in their life. And uh, more times than not, the conversation would turn to uh, there's a passage in Luke that says, when a student is fully taught, he'll be like his teacher. So I would look dad in the eye and say, so what is it that you want him to do differently? And a lot of times dads actually struggled to, to say what it is. They knew what they didn't want him to do wrong, but they couldn't articulate what they wanted him to do right. And then I would ask the faithful question, so dad, if your son was to become just like you, what would change? And that's when the conversation went silent. Sobering, how many times 
dad would acknowledge for the first time that his son has become just like him. That's why he was in my office hoping that I would change him. And so my counsel to him would be the same as it is to you. If as you looked at this list of things and you realize your fruit is not what it should be. It's not the witness that brings Christ honor. What I would share with dads is you need to first go to Christ and acknowledge your sin. And ask for his forgiveness. Second, I would encourage him to go to his son and list. And I would encourage dads to make a list of all the ways that they have not been the father example to their son that honors Christ. And go through the list specifically. The I've not been a good dad is not good. That's not a sufficient line. List it. And then, what am I going to do differently? After asking for his son's forgiveness. And here's what I'm going to do differently. Because see, here in Matthew 7, in another verse, in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus is saying, how can I judge my son? How can I help him in his life? How can I help him change in his walk? If I've got a log in my own eye, and I'm trying to get the speck out of my son's life and his eye. Jesus says, he doesn't say, don't, don't make any judgments. We prefer that interpretation. What he's saying is, first get the log out of your own eye so you can help your brother get the speck out of his eye. So that would be my challenge, is what are those areas where I need to cut the log out of my own eye so then I can share Jesus with these friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors, and they would listen because my walk matches my talk. I can just say this. Many of those that I've counseled to go and ask for forgiveness, that's the best evangelism they've ever had. And you know why? Because when the person is there in the room with their jaw on the floor, shocked that this man is admitting that he's wrong and articulating in detail the things that he's done, they're like, what brought this on? And that's when you say, it's because of my God. Can I share the good news about him with you? There is no better time than in that humbling moment. To share why they need Jesus in the same way we do. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to regain your witness? You've got to humble yourself. That leads us to point number two. And I'm going to save that for next week. <laughs> I had multiple conversations this week 
And the people I was speaking with had no idea this was the, the text for today's sermon. And I was amazed how frequently the concept came up that the number one problem in the church is hypocrites. People who pretend outwardly to be one thing, but everybody knows there's something else. Everybody knows there's something else. Can I just say that James' desire is the half-brother of Christ? His desire is that the church... would be sold out to their king, their savior, who died for them. Can you imagine the impact that even a small church like Ambassador could have if we were not compromised? And by the way, since I'm not going to the rest, we'll just camp here for a moment. How does Satan work? Uh, I'll just say this as clear as I can. Satan sits on your shoulder. The visual you see on TV is very good. He sits right there on your shoulder and he whispers in your ear. And you know what he's whispering? You know. Because you've had him whispering in your ear. You're just about. Someone comes in, you see that they have an issue. They're crying. They're distraught. They're struggling. You see it. You observe it. You want to help. But then all of a sudden, someone on your shoulder says, What do they know about what you did on Friday night? Because you're going to go over and represent Jesus in this conversation because you know Jesus can help that person who's hurting. But someone's whispering in your ear, but do you remember what you did on Friday night? What if they were to find out that, and then you fill in the blank. And then what do we do? We pull back. Why? We're blackmailed. We're blackmailed into silence. Why? It's the fear that I would be exposed, that my exterior persona would not be accurately reflecting my heart reality. And it's that fear that keeps me from being bold. It keeps me from being faithful, obedient, How do we get to where we're no longer blackmailed? So when that DVD comes in the mail, addressed to somebody other than you, that's leverage. How do you get rid of the leverage? You confess. The DVD has no more power when you confess and repent. That's my challenge. 
That's what James is saying here is, who is wise and understanding? Who's going to be bearing fruit because they are living out their faith? Can I just say, it's going to be those who are not compromised in their hearts, their souls. They are men above reproach. What you see is what you get. That's how ambassador could be light to a dark world, salt to a world that is hurting. And we would be ones who would be bold in going there. Why? Because we're not compromised. We're not blackmailed. We have a clean conscience. You can't buy that, but Jesus offers it on his terms. Let's pray. Precious Father, we're so grateful for your son. Lord, the amazing sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would respond with gratitude and love. Lord, you said that if we loved you, we would keep your commandments. Lord, forgive us for how much we struggle to love you. We love so many other things more. Would you help us this week to look at ourselves honestly? That we would not lie to ourselves, deceive us or others. But Lord, we would allow your spirit to look into our heart and our minds. You would penetrate the excuses and justifications that we've created. And Lord, you would prick our hearts to repent and to truly love you and seek you in your face first. Lord, we need your help. And we thank you for your spirit that you give us that makes it possible. Lord, may we testify of you this week from a clear conscience. In your son's name, amen.